Amen. Thank you for joining us for worship this morning. It's exciting time of year. Christmas is fast approaching faster than I think I was ready for, but I am excited because this week we get to celebrate Christmas Eve together as a church family. And so we are so excited to sing some of those famous traditional Christmas hymns, to unpack the rest of the Christmas story about who Jesus is. And it is the perfect opportunity to invite friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, even strangers to worship with us. There's something special that takes place at the Christmas season that softens people's hearts to receive an invitation. So we wanted to make it as easy as possible for you. We printed a lot of these invite cards. They're available in the lobby. We would love if you would take one and make it your mission to invite someone. If you just take some and stick them in your wallet, It'll be New Year's and you'll give them out and people think we're slacking because it's a Christmas card, but make it your mission. My mission this year, I'm just going to put it in front of you guys for accountability, is to invite my next door neighbor. She does not go to church, I know, because she's there when I leave for church and she's there when I get home from church. And I think she knows that I want her to come to church with me because I've been inviting her since last Christmas. And I've carried one of these invite cards in my pocket every day I pull in. I kid you not, she pulls out. And I'm like chasing her down the road with the invite card. So I told Carissa, I will make it my mission. If, if Paula does not join us, it will not be because she went uninvited. Uh, we are going to unpack the, the final name of Jesus, Prince of Peace. And I am so excited about the sermon. I wrote most of it this week, and uh, it's, it's really good. It was really convicting. Uh, God is, is so good. But before we do that, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 and all through God's word this morning. So I hope you have a Bible with you. Hold it in readiness if you can find it on your phone, whatever it takes, because we're going to move at a rapid pace today, just like Christmas is coming rapidly. Do you ever feel like Christmas sneaks up on you no matter how long ahead of time you start preparing? I feel like, it, like I grew up and my parents always, like when you're growing up, it seems like Christmas took forever to come. But the older you get, the faster it arrives. And then you put kids in the mix and all the Christmas traditions and their expectations. And it just seems like it gets here so fast. It hit me last night. Carissa, as a family, we're running a little bit behind, but Carissa's done all of the Christmas shopping and she got everything out of Brighton went to bed last night and started wrapping gifts. And I was sitting there looking over my notes for today and I was asking her, so what did we get so-and-so? And she would tell me and then wrap the present. And what did we get so-and-so? She'd tell me the present. And it was about halfway through the presents, I realized that I haven't done my Christmas shopping for Carissa yet. She literally buys for everybody and anybody on the list. I have one job, buy something nice for Carissa, and I haven't done it. Time is running out. There's a supply chain crisis, so she might just get good thoughts for Christmas this year. I don't know. And then we pulled into our driveway last night, like I've already shared, our young daughter, our two-year-old, like her favorite thing is to look at Christmas lights. She just loves it. And so we pulled in the driveway and she's been asking for weeks, like, Daddy, put lights on my house. And I realized Christmas is this week and there's no lights on our house. And I just feel like, man, such a failure as a father. I ran out of time. It's a shameless transition. I'm so grateful that we serve an everlasting Father. And it was honestly this week, as Christmas was getting here faster and faster, and I realized how limited I am by time and capacity that God blows us away, that he is an everlasting Father. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, this has been our theme verse all month. The prophet Isaiah predicts the coming of the Messiah. And to the people of Israel, some 700 years, even before the birth of Jesus, he says this. He says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
As we've said every week, these names weren't just nicknames given to Jesus. These were, these were names to describe who Jesus was and the way he interacts with his people. So today, we're going to look at that one name, two different parts, Everlasting Father. And we're going to have to kind of handle both words independently and then put them together at the end, that Jesus is, in fact, everlasting. He is eternal. He is bound by time. He is not measurable. He is infinite. It was two years ago, just over two years ago, Carissa gave birth to our first uh, child. Oh, she's our only child right now, but hopefully someday our first child. And I just remember seeing the, the baby, and, and she was so beautiful once they got her out and cleaned her up a little bit and wrapped her up and put her there. And, and the nurse laid her out in the delivery room and started marking measurements, put her on a scale and weighed her six pounds, five ounces, and put laid her down, stretched her out 19 inches. It's like, well, she's got her mom's petite size, but hopefully she got my length. But it hit me in that moment, as beautiful, as perfect as she was, she is measurable, where we serve a God who is immeasurable, right? Like Jesus has always been. He came in the form of baby Jesus at Christmas, but it wasn't Jesus showing up on the scene for the first time. He was in the beginning. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, meaning Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. I love the way the psalmist says it in Psalm chapter 90. Moses himself actually writes this psalm. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but, a, but as yesterday, when it is past, or as a watch in the night. And I love how the psalmist is saying, Moses here is writes this psalm, he's saying that we cannot grasp the eternal nature of God, that by our very limited capacity as mortal human beings, we cannot grasp an immortal, eternal God. A thousand years with God is like yesterday for us, which doesn't even begin to describe it because I don't know about you, can you remember everything you did yesterday? It's already fading from my memory, but God can recall what happened a thousand years ago with an instant without having to remember. He can see a thousand years into the future. He has existed from everlasting to everlasting. He is beyond comprehension. Jen Wilkin in her book, None Like Him, describes these verses from Psalm chapter 90. She says this. She says, as we read these verses, note the gener generationless, everlasting timelessness of God laid against grass and flowers, brevity of man. Unbound by time, God has always been and will always be. The years have no hold on him, yet he determines ours. Moses responds to this knowledge with a supplication, so God teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. Teach us. We have something to learn, God, from your eternality, eternality and our ephemerality. I knew this was ephemerality. I even looked it up. Help us grasp the wisdom of numbering our days. And I love, I love what the psalmist is doing here. And I love what we see as we lean into this, this idea that Jesus is everlasting. He's everlasting father, that he is from ever, uh, everlasting past to everlasting future. He is eternal, that he's not bound by time, that Jesus has never been late and he's never been hurried. Carissa and I haven't gone anywhere that we haven't been hurried, but Jesus is never in a hurry. And at the same time, he is working all things together for our good. The question then that I've been wrestling with this week is how is that possibly so? Like, how is it that God is working all things together for our good, that this everlasting father's never been late, he's never been early, he's never been rushed, and at the same time, he's working all things together for our good? 
And I realized this week that they go hand in hand because God, by the very nature of God, he's working in a different time frame. Like we work with the next five minutes in mind, if 10 minutes if you're a strategic thinker. He works with eternity in mind. This has been on the forefront of my mind recently, and I've been trying to unpack it with Chris and some others, just trying to think about the eternal nature of the God that we serve. Especially when I look at the things going on in our midst, because as you think about what God's been doing in our church over the last few weeks, it's been some really incredible things. Even the last year, we've seen people give their life to Jesus. Just a few weeks ago, we celebrated Baptism Sunday, the eternal trajectory of lives being changed for eternity. It's so exciting. Discipleship taking place in community groups and discipleship groups, prayer and friendships developing. And, and literally, we say all the time, heaven looks different because of what God is doing through his church. And it's so exciting to celebrate the good things. And at the exact same time, even in our church family, we've received in the recent months devastating diagnosis for people in our church and for friends and family members. This week, the, those of us who uh, went to college together, several of us, we had a, a friend who passed away. He was younger than I was. He's been someone that we've been praying for healing uh, fervently for the last few weeks after a surgery was unsuccessful. So people dealing with suffering and sickness. So the question that I've been on my mind, like I trust that God is good, but how can both be true? How can I hold intention that God is good, that he's never late? At the same time, prayers that I'm praying seemingly going unanswered. Here's what I've learned. I don't have to understand. In fact, I can't understand, but I can trust. One of the things I've noticed as I've been reading through the scripture that Jesus held this tension. Like when he showed up, he knew everything that had happened in the past. He knew everything that was going to take place in the future. Maybe you remember in John chapter 11, Jesus shows up in the town of Bethany. I think it's 11 or 15. I can't remember. John chapter something. And uh, Lazarus, Jesus' friend, had, been, had, had died. He was sick. And Mary and Martha, Lazarus' uh, sisters, they were weeping and mourning. And people from the town had gathered together. And Jesus knew this took place. In fact, word got to Jesus before Lazarus died. And he chose to slow his coming so that Lazarus could die. So ultimately, he'd be glorified because he knew that he would raise Lazarus from the dead. But when he showed up at Bethany and Mary and Martha come out, they're just weeping at the loss of their, their, their loved one, their brother. What, Jesus knows he's going to raise him from the dead. But do you remember what happened before? It says Jesus wept, that he had compassion, he had empathy. He felt this tension of that God is working all things together for the good. But in the moment, because we are not everlasting in our understanding, we're not eternally focused all the time. Um, there's this tension of trying to wrestle with the way that God trying to understand how God is working here. But the invitation, if God is eternal, if Jesus is everlasting, is we should lean in to learn from him. And the good news is the fact that Jesus is everlasting, but he's also our father, gives us some glimpse, some capacity to understand who God is in his eternal nature. And so what I mean by that is if you've uh, read the Old Testament, if you've read the New Testament, there's a sharp contrast in the way Jesus and God are presented. In the Old Testament, it was unheard of to talk about God as our Father. In fact, in all of the Old Testament, only 14 times is God referred to as a Father. And in almost every one of those, it was as the Father of the nation of Israel. But in the New Testament, as we turn the page into the New Testament, God is called my Father, Jesus is called my Father, 250 times. What happened? Jesus happened. And he came and he opened to us this understanding of who Jesus is or who God is as our Father. In fact, the first recorded words of Jesus in uh, the New Testament are, did you not know that I had to be about my Father's business 
The last recorded words of Jesus on the cross were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's this idea that Jesus presents to us that, that, that God, Jesus, the eternal God is our Father. Now, there's a danger built in here when we begin to filter our view of our Heavenly Father through the lens or experience of our Heavenly Father. So, or earthly father, rather. Some of you sense that danger immediately because you have had or you currently have a father who is distant, cruel, or gone. And trying to wrap your mind around God as a good and gracious heavenly father when you're filtering it through the lens of a less than perfect earthly father can pollute your understanding of who God is. At the same time, some of us, myself included, I think I have an incredibly father, incredible earthly father by, by earthly standards. I'd say that even if he wasn't in the room. Yet even the best earthly father falls far short of representing our heavenly father. And so the way we can understand, I think, our heavenly father is through this parable that Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 15. If you've grown up in church, you're, as you turn there, you instantly know what comes to mind. It's the parable of the prodigal son. If you're new to church or trying to figure out faith and you're not familiar with this parable, it gives us a tremendous insight into who God is as our Heavenly Father. And Jesus, to the first century audience, is trying to introduce this idea that Jesus is Father to, to Jews who were, uh, had this reverent fear of God that he is unapproachable as he, as he was. But that's saying at the same time, he is, a, he is a, a, a father, a heavenly father who is good and gracious and invites us into his presence. And so the way Jesus did that is as he often did to communicate eternal truths was with these parables, these pictures, these word pictures of who God is. And in Luke chapter 15, verse 11, it says this, Jesus teaching the people, he said to them, there was a man who had two sons. So we call this the parable of the prodigal son, but I wonder if it's sometimes misrepresented because the main character of this parable really seems to be the father. It starts with, there was a man who had two sons. Ultimately, it's going to turn their attention to his two sons and describe the interaction that he had with them. But the parable begins with the father. It's Jesus trying to communicate to the first century audience and to the 21st century audience and everyone who's read the scripture in between that God is represented here as the man who had two sons. It doesn't mean that we can't project ourselves or see ourselves into the story because immediately he says this. He says, the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And so he divided the property between them. And so in their culture, much like in our culture, when someone died, their inherited their property went to their children. And this, this uh, son, the younger son, knew that when his father died, he had one-third of his father's land and property and money and resources coming to him. The older son would always get uh, a double portion. So he was saying to his father, man, I wish, what he was, he was saying to his father, I wish you were dead. Like, I'd rather have your things than have you. And so the father, as shocking as that is, he divides his property. He takes the two-thirds, he sells off a third of it, and he gives the inheritance prematurely to his youngest son. That tells us something incredible about God, that as much as we, uh, it, would, it would hurt the father's heart, he is willing to let us go when we want to. And the truth is, whether we realize it or not, we've all communicated at some point this exact message to God. That God has provided everything we need for life, and at some point, all of us have rejected all that God has, has to offer to set out to try our own way. 
And so just like the prodigal son, it says, Father, give us our share of the inheritance. We want to go our way. We would rather have the things from you than have you. And verse 13 says this. He says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. So after the father liquidated a third of his inheritance, his property and his possessions, he gives it to the younger son. The younger son gathers all of those resources. He took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And so the younger son, like, I mean, we read this story, especially if we're familiar with it, we've grown up with it, and we just kind of read over it. But what we realize is the younger son represents all of us at some point. That at some point in life, though God had given us everything we need for life, we, we say, God, we would rather have the things from you, and I'd rather take the things entrusted to us, even the breath of my lungs. I'd rather go live for myself. And so we take the resources, just like the young son, and we go to squander our, our wealth in uh, reckless living. And we, he goes after, I think it's interesting, several things packed into this one verse. The first of all is that he goes to a, a faraway land, a distant country where no one would know him. No one would know his family name. No one would know what he did to his father. He's seeking the kind of autonomy that in our flesh we all long for. Then he takes the resources entrusted to him and squanders them in reckless living. You can only imagine what was included in reckless living, sleeping with whoever, eating with whatever, drinking whatever, smoking whatever, the same thing all of us in our flesh long for to gratify the desires of our flesh. But what really stood out to me this week is verse 14. It says, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, he began to be in need. What really stood out to me is this parable sets up, and the father takes all that he has and sells a portion of it and gives it to the son. He goes off to a distant land. He squanders his resources in reckless living, and all of his fun lasted one verse. Have you ever noticed that? Like, I never noticed that before. I mean, I've heard the parable preached. I remember it being put on a felt board when I was a kid in Sunday school. And it was always kind of just something like we talked about, about the love of God, which ultimately we will get there. But this man, like, he went to his father and he said to him, to his face, Father, I wish you were dead. I wish you would just give me the things that I have coming to me. And his father broke his father's heart, but his father nonetheless obliged him. He gave him his things. He goes off to a distant land. He seeks autonomy. He lives it up for one verse which communicates an eternal truth that sin, though it might be fun in the moment, the, the, the happiness or the fun that comes with sin is fleeting. Right, like I've heard, and I've, I've made this reference before, but old stuffy Christians that would say, you know, sin isn't fun. And if someone tells you sin isn't fun, you just kind of look at them and say, well, if sin's not fun, you're not doing it right, right? Like sin is fun for a moment, but eventually it'll catch up to you. And we can see this with literally any sin. One of the ones that came to mind last night was the sin of gluttony, of overeating. We went out to my grandfather's 80th birthday, and I figured if I have a grandfather that's 80, I've got pretty good genes. And so we went to an Italian restaurant, I ordered a big plate of food, ate all the appetizers. And like, I was just so excited. I was eating on my dad's dime. And so just like, bring on this good earthly father, you know, and bring on a big plate of food and appetizers. I took some of my daughters. I took some of my cousins, all of it. I just ate all the food. And it was so fun while we were sitting there. And then I stood up to go home and instantly, like I knew it. All night, Chris is wrapping gifts. I'm just like moaning on the couch trying to review my sermon. And this morning I woke up, I was drinking coffee. And I was like, man, I think I need breakfast. I was like, I don't have any room for breakfast. I ate way too much food last night. And I say that because gluttony is a sin we kind of think about as funny at some time, so it's not. But any sin feels fun in the moment, but nearly instantly, one verse later, it starts to kill us. It starts to hurt us, inflict pain on us. The way we in, uh, 
steward our finances and our relational relationships and things like that can circle back to hurt us. But here's the thing I was realizing, especially in the context of an eternal, everlasting father, I think it's more than that. We have a tendency to run after things that feel good for a moment while trying to serve a God who is everlasting. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, it says this. It says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. And so again, you just the idea of this everlasting, eternal God who we can't grasp. But one thing he tells us, as much as he makes himself known, is that he's put eternity into our heart, that we are eternal beings. And when we try to fill the voids in our life with things that are fleeting, it's never going to satisfy because they ultimately all come to an end. Even the good things like relationships, finances, career, things that God has given us. Like if we try to fill the eternal void in our life with earthly things, they all fall far short. And at some point, it all comes crashing down. That's exactly what happened in the story. It says, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country. He began to be in need, so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And so what he's trying to do is the exact same thing we try to do. He went to his father, and he squandered his wealth. He found himself in a desperate situation. He found himself on the other side of sin, and so he goes out and he gets a job. He's out of money. He's going to try to earn his way out of the situation that he's in. The only job he can find is feeding pigs, and so he goes and he starts feeding pigs, and the situation just continues to get worse the harder he tries to get out of it. It says, verse 16, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs, eat, pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. He found himself lonely and hungry and broken and desperate. In verse 17, when he says, when all of that hit, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so you can see the story unfolding. He's come to the end of himself. He's, he's squandered all of the resources that his father gave him. He's dealing with the guilt and the shame of looking his father in the eye and wishing him dead. He's, the, the fun of, of the sin has uh, faded into his distant memory. Now he finds himself hungry, without food, without anyone by his side, without any kind of community. And he says, Lord, I'm just going to go back to my father. I'm going to go back to him. I'm going to say, I'm not worthy to be called your son, but if you would just take me in as a servant, maybe you could give me a place to work and just earn your favor, at least earn your provision. So he works up this plan. He goes back. He says, I'm no longer worthy. To, um, verse 20, he said, he rose and he came to his father. And here we get the picture of the father again. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion on him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So you get this beautiful part of this story where the, the son is, is going home. He's literally rolled out of a, a pigsty. He's, he's walking home humbly, hungry. And when he's approaching the house, the father sees him from a distance, which means the father had been waiting for a son to come home. Now, I don't know about you, but if this happened in my house, I mean, I don't know what I'd do. But I don't know that I would go to the end of the driveway every, every day and just wait and watch for my son or my daughter to come home because he was doing this at great expense and inconvenience to himself. Think of the business deals he had to pass up, the chores around the house that went unfinished because he was focused on repairing the relationship he had with his son. And when he sees him a long way off, his father felt compassion. 
And he ran to him and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the picture of this first century Jewish man hiking up his robe that he wore and running to him shameless, not caring what anybody saw and just wrapping his arms around his son and, and kissing on him. This kid that stinks and smells like pigs. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father goes before the son even has a chance to rehearse the well-put-together speech he has. The, um, I, was, I was realizing that the father's love was not dependent on the words that the son had, but the words were important. Repentance is an important part of acknowledging that he had sinned against the father. But as soon as the words come out of his mouth, the father said to his servant this. He says, Quick, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Whose robe would have been the best robe? The father's. He's saying, go find my robe, the best robe in my closet, the one I wear for fancy dinners, and bring it here and put it on me. And so the, the servant goes and brings the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, restore to him his previous position, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us celebrate. Then he finishes this. He says, for this, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And they began to celebrate. And so we get this beautiful picture of our Heavenly Father packed into this small parable that Jesus teaches to a group of people trying to understand God as Father. We see God waiting and longing for a restored relationship with those who have wronged Him. We see that no matter how far we go from God, when we come to our senses, if we want to come back, He's willing to, to bring us into Him. And when we come to Jesus, I just love the picture it says, put the, bring the best robe and put it on him. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 and 27 says for this, it says, for in Christ Jesus, when we put our faith in Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And Paul writes to the church in Galatia, and he gives them this beautiful picture of taking the, the robe of Christ and his righteousness and literally putting it over the, the sinful, smelly life that we have lived. And here is the picture perfect picture of our heavenly father so like what does that mean for the church like i i know like you guys are familiar with the story and so i told carissa as i was trying to think through like there's i love the christmas season i hate sharing the christmas story because you've heard it a million times so it's like what am i going to find packed into the story that's going to uh teach you something that you didn't know or the story like this and god has just been so gracious to tell me like my job isn't to teach you something new but to remind you of god's goodness to remind you of his grace, those things that have been taught to you for years and years, the stories that you have read, that God is more good and gracious. And if in some way I can remind you of that, God can work in and through his church. That's exactly what's been going on in my prayer time. I have a, if you have your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 7. I was sharing this with the worship team pre pre-service in our pre-service huddle, and they ask, is Hebrews your favorite book in the Bible? Far from it, but it's where I've been in my prayer time, and so it seems like as the Holy Spirit speaks to me, it always coincides with the sermon I have to share with you. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23, the writer of Hebrews is sharing a picture of Jesus, not as a father, but as an eternal priest, because he was saying, like, in the former priesthood, the, under the law, the priests were many in number. In fact, it says this, 723. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. And he's just stating the obvious, that God is everlasting, but we are certainly limited. And we've all died. Everyone who served as a priest for the people has passed away. But he, Jesus, the greater priest, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. 
And this is the text that I've been meditating on all week. Verse 25, consequently, he, God, Jesus, is able to save the uttermost, meaning wholly and completely. That means no matter how far you've wandered from God in the life you once lived or how far you currently are from God now, no matter whether you're coming to Jesus for the very first time or you're humbly coming back to him after walking away from him, he's able to save and sanctify from the, to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we get this beautiful picture. Just leave that verse up there if it'll stay on the screen. We get this beautiful picture in Luke chapter 15 of a prodigal son making his way back to a loving father. And here in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, as you've read in the parable, so is true in your life. And no matter how far you've wandered from God, whether you've squandered your life with sin and licentiousness and all kinds of things, or if you just drifted from him. Maybe that's your story today. Maybe this Christmas season, you just feel like you've drifted from God. It's not that you ever stopped loving him. It's not that you ever stopped serving him. But you just realize that, man, your time with God is hurting. It says he is able to save, repair, put back together, sanctify you completely, those who draw near to God through him. My, my uh, invitation to you today from God's word, we, we serve an everlasting father. To draw that invites us to draw near to him, to come back. What does your personal time with God look like? We can talk about corporately as a church and but man, but what does your personal time look like? Do you spend this week as you evaluate, you do inventory, like did you spend time with Jesus? Did you sit with him in his word and spend time praying? When you think about God, do you think about him as a God who's just overseeing, waiting for you to mess up, waiting for you to earn your way back to him, or a God who is good and gracious and looking to help you get back to him, who is willing to wrap his arms around you and put his robes of righteousness upon you to restore the relationship that you and I have broken. Romans chapter 8, verse 14 through 17, the final verse, says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. It's that same story. It's that personal time you're spending with God. It's his Spirit leading you. Do you, depend your, do you depend on the Sunday morning to refill your tank and try to get you through the week? Or are you spending daily time being led by the Spirit of God? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and have children than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Like just because we're heirs of God doesn't mean we don't suffer. In fact, the Bible would suggest that because we are heirs with God, because we unite our life with Christ, suffering comes. So as I look around our church and I think about the things that people are going through, the things that we are praying is earnestly fasting for, for healing, for forgiveness, for restored relationships. Like suffering is baked into the cake of being a follower of Jesus. But when we suffer with him, we don't suffer as a servant. We don't suffer as a slave. We suffer as a son or a daughter who's going to be glorified with him. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and your grace. You are, in fact, an everlasting father. And Father, I pray that as we meditate on these words over the course of this week, as we think about the Christmas story, as Friday rolls around and Saturday, and we celebrate with friends and family, coworkers, the, the joy of Christmas Day, Christmas Eve, Christmas morning, and all things Christmas, Father, it would, it would remind us that in that manger, little baby Jesus was not just a measurable baby. He was an infinite God, an everlasting Father, that he came to take away the sins of the world. 
And as soon as we humble ourselves, no matter where we find ourselves with you, whether we are far from you or we just drifted over the course of this week, you invite us back that we might draw near. And as we draw near, you go to work on our behalf. You do what we could never do. Father, I pray that as a church that this week, this season, the end of this year would be a year marked by your people drawing near to you. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.